This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vian, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of January 30th, 2023, here are some top stories. A wall of shipping containers put up by former Governor Ducey's administration along the border in Cochise County last year has been removed. That's after the federal government sued to stop the work in December. But as Elisa Resnick reports, a trail of wildlife concerns and lawsuits are left in its wake. On a breezy morning last December, Eamon Harity, with the conservation group Sky Island Alliance, scanned the horizon with a pair of binoculars. So we, we climbed our way up out of the oak woodlands of the Patagonia Mountains, and we crested over into the San Rafael Valley, which is a, a really beautiful and mostly intact desert grassland system. Down below, a herd of more than two dozen pronghorn antelope bounced up and down in the tall golden grass. Harity says there's probably 300 of these animals Arizona-wide. It's one species of dozens that call the San Rafael Valley home. So we're looking at like 10% of all the pronghorn in this valley right now. The valley stretches across 30 miles of the Arizona-Sonora border and is punctuated by steep mountain peaks called Sky Islands, where dramatically different climates give way to some of the richest biodiversity in the world. It's one of the only large swaths of the Arizona border where the 30-foot steel bollard wall erected under former President Donald Trump doesn't cut through. So it, the wall starts a little bit near Sierra Vista and it goes through Naco, through Douglas, continues east, continues east uninterrupted until you get to almost New Mexico, Guadalupe Canyon, it stops. So that's 70 miles straight. That's why about three years ago, Harriet's organization began using wildlife cameras here to monitor how animals were responding to the new border barriers. But in his State of the State address last year, then-Governor Doug Ducey said Arizona would build its own barriers where the federal government had not already done so. Our border is a patchwork of federal, state, tribal, and private lands. Where Arizona can add physical barriers to the border, we will. That isn't exactly true. While Arizona's border does have some private and state land, it's overwhelmingly under federal jurisdiction. The state isn't allowed to build there. Nonetheless, last fall, Ducey commissioned two projects in Cochise and Yuma counties to build makeshift walls of shipping containers. Both were illegally built on federal land. The Cochise County project was slated to cover 10 miles of land in the Coronado National Forest, right in the middle of the San Rafael Valley stretch. Harity says for wildlife, that meant this mostly untouched border wilderness was suddenly in peril. I joined him on a trip to check and place wildlife cameras in the San Rafael Valley. Uh, Maya and I will set this camera up. We have it facing this wash. He has what looks like a GoPro encased in a heavy-duty metal cage. And he's using a thick strap to wrap it around a big oak tree. This wash um, might not seem like it, but it's had some cool things, including mountain lions, black bears, uh, mule deers, white-tailed deer, three species of skunk. Harity has other cameras set up at the shipping container site itself. This one is a few miles away from it. But he says what goes on with any border barrier in one place will inevitably affect what happens elsewhere. Because animals will be faced with less space to roam, which Harity says could lead to more competition, less resources, even the permanent alteration of an ecosystem. For whatever reason we're doing this, the implications go much beyond 
us, our lifetime, and even the lifetime of our great-great-grandkids. It's History will look back and think, boy, that was a mistake. In early December, a suit filed by the Department of Justice against the state of Arizona ordered both shipping container walls to come down and environmental remediation to begin. All told, the projects cost Arizona taxpayers more than $200 million to put up and remove. You know, the biggest concerns of ours as far as remediation goes is to how they're going to restore some of those areas that they impacted. That's Mark Fink with the Center for Biological Diversity. His group filed two suits challenging the shipping container projects on environmental grounds. Also unclear is how much the work will cost. Fortunately, this was you know, not just a political stunt, but a really costly political stunt. Now the legal battle has shifted to Governor Katie Hobbs. In a court filing yesterday afternoon, Hobbs and other parties agreed to hold off on proceedings for now so federal entities can assess the damage left behind from the containers. Alisa Resnick, KJZZ News, reporting from the San Rafael Valley. In Fronteras News, despite a great deal, a vibrant cycling scene has taken root in the Sonoran capital, Hermosillo. Deadly streets are among the many challenges riders face, and in the wake of a recent tragedy, the community is raising its voice to insist that a safer city is possible for all vulnerable road users. From our Fronteras desk in Hermosillo, Murphy Woodhouse reports. The weekly Bikes and Beers group ride is normally a raucous, lighthearted affair. Dozens ride through the night in a circuitous route that invariably ends at a bar or brewery. But on a recent Wednesday, the mood was more somber. As organizers had requested, many came dressed in white to show their solidarity with a recently fallen comrade. Fidel Javier Castro, a long-standing group writer, says that just a few days prior, the city's cycling community had learned that Raul Pacheco, the head of nursing at a major local hospital and an active member of his union, had been fatally struck by a car at the north end of the city. Victor Rivera was also dressed in white and says he came to send a message to local authorities and cycling groups to work together to improve the safety situation, not just for cyclists, but also pedestrians. That situation is grim. Federal data show that between 2017 and 2021, 30 cyclists were killed on Hermosillo streets, the highest municipal figure in the country, and several hundred more were injured. 91 pedestrians were killed in the same period. An organizer called out the evening's route before the massive group headed out into the night. The first stop would be a monument to cyclists killed on the city's streets that would be familiar to Arizonans. A white bike atop a tall pole in the middle of a grassy island bounded by busy streets. With participants laying flowers and lit candles at the monument's base, longtime bike activist Jose Olivero told the large crowd that the tragedy didn't need to happen and that further deaths can be prevented by investing in bike infrastructure, like protected bike lanes. He asked for a minute's silence in honor of Raul and his family. Mournful faces glowed in the candlelight. Veronica Miranda, Raul's sister, had been waiting at home with another sibling on New Year's Eve with plans to ring in 2023 as a family. Instead, all that came was terrible news. His death left his four children without a father and his whole family hoping for justice. Part of that is accountability for the person responsible. But her brother's death has also opened her eyes to the dangers faced by all cyclists in the city. Biking was one of Raul's joys, and she wants to help turn things around. 
tanto para ciclistas y peatones, pues se reconoce que la infraestructura sí requiere más atención. José Carrillo es el head of Hermosillo's municipal planning body, Implan. While touting the sizable system of bike infrastructure that has been installed, he acknowledges that both bikers and pedestrians face a situation that he says needs and will get attention. Part of that is doing a better job to ensure the regular maintenance of the bike lanes that already exist. Carrillo says the current administration hopes to add steadily to the network of some 110 miles, and in a way that improves its interconnectedness. KJZZ obtained the location data for hundreds of recent bike and pedestrian incidents. Perhaps unsurprisingly, they are heavily concentrated along the city's wide, high-speed thoroughfares. A single particularly notorious road was the site of over 13% of fatal crashes in the roughly five years of incidents. Implan is also monitoring that data, using it to prioritize projects in problem areas. But infrastructure is only a part of the equation. There is also Hermosillo's infamous road culture, a fast erratic driving and general disregard for others. A piece of federal legislation approved last year seeks to reduce crashes and make Mexican roads safer for all users. One change he highlighted would set a maximum speed of roughly 30 miles an hour for urban streets. The group ride had carried on, but activist Sebastián Gagiola hung back to share his thoughts. He calls Hermosillo's deadly mix of often distracted, reckless drivers and inadequate infrastructure a breeding ground for tragedies like Raúl's. He's the head of a committee that advises local leaders on cycling issues, and he says they're being listened to. But action, he says, has been too slow and must speed up. Lives hang in the balance. Murphy Woodhouse, KJZZ News, Hermosillo. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In business news, between the price of groceries, higher mortgage rates, and news reports of layoffs, some people are bracing for tougher economic times or wondering if they should be. So how does the Valley's economy look? From our business desk, Christina Estes brings us this snapshot. Talk of a slowdown can sometimes feel like it's everywhere. 75% of them believe that there's an economic slowdown looming. You've got a lot of people feeling like their paychecks are not catching up. IBM is set to lay off about 1.5% of its uh, workforce. And the stock responds positively because investors go, you overhired, we have to pull back, we have to right-size. The chatter got louder after Amazon, Google, and Meta, Facebook's parent company, announced more than 40,000 employees would lose their jobs. During a webinar hosted by the Greater Phoenix Economic Council, Steve Wyatt with BOK Financial provided this context for the roughly 175,000 recent layoffs in the tech industry. Getting back to the size of our labor force at 164 million, what are we talking about there? Maybe a tenth of a percent. That's not really indicative of a uh, weakening uh, labor market. And by the way, uh, it does appear a lot of those people that are getting laid off are finding other jobs pretty quickly because the unemployment rate continues to be at a cycle low of three and a half percent. Arizona has recovered the number of jobs lost during the pandemic and added about 100,000 more. GPEC's Kristen Stevenson said the Valley's job growth rate is expected to slow a bit over the next couple years. For all the talk of a national recession, as of right now, Greater Phoenix and Arizona are forecasted to kind of uh, float along the top of that, maybe seeing more of a slowdown than an actual deceleration in growth. That's partly because of population growth. We'll need more healthcare workers and retail and restaurant employees. But it's also because of lessons learned from the Great Recession when we took the brunt of the housing collapse. Since then, elected officials, along with business and economic development leaders, have focused on diversifying our economy 
so if one sector takes a hit, it won't feel like a tsunami. Stevenson said Arizona's manufacturing sector, that includes computer chips, electronic products, and transportation equipment, now employs as many people as the construction industry. I think to people who have been around for a while, that's that's kind of a, a surprising statistic to hear. We're also seeing the uh, other types of jobs grow here too. So you'll see um, within the top 10 software developers, um, we're expecting that uh, industry to grow by, you know, 19% over the next five years, adding, you know, 5,000 people here. Historically, our median wages have lagged behind national numbers. While the gap is narrowing, it may not feel like it because our cost of living is 6% higher than the national average, mostly due to housing costs. We are back in a seller's market, believe it or not, just barely. Analyst Tina Tambor said over the last month, demand has picked up while supply has dropped. Why? Recession talk is making investors skittish and they've moved away from flipping and selling. Since June, owner-occupants have now come back and they're now driving the bus on housing again. It used to be your cash investors, but now we've got homeowners, normal people who want to live in the home are now back in their normal range between 70 and 75 percent. As of mid-January, she said potential buyers could find the best deals in Goodyear and Buckeye, Queen Creek and Maricopa. You are now seeing instead of list price being the starting price where they go up from there, now we're seeing the, the negotiations coming in where they're ending at about 3.5% below the last list price. The data shared during last week's webinar provided a snapshot in time. The Federal Reserve is expected to raise interest rates again. By making it more expensive to borrow money, the central bank hopes to slow the economy to bring down inflation without causing major job losses. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In education news. Tom Horn, Arizona's new superintendent of public instruction, campaigned against the instruction of critical race theory in schools. Now in office, Horn's throwing his support behind a bill that would keep teachers from talking about race in certain ways. From our education desk, Bridget Dowd reports. House Bill 2458 would prohibit a school district or charter school from teaching courses that advocate ethnic solidarity instead of treating people as individuals. It's similar to another law Horn supported more than a decade ago, which was later declared unconstitutional. On Tuesday, Horn testified in favor of this new bill before the House Education Committee. We need to teach our students to treat each other as individuals and not pay attention to race or sexual orientation or anything else that has to do with their birth. Critical race theory teaches the opposite. If a teacher is found to be in violation of HB 2458, they could face a fine of up to $5,000. Democrats like Representative Nancy Gutierrez said they were concerned the threat of fines would hinder Arizona's ability to recruit new teachers. Passing this bill will endanger quality teaching where all students feel seen and heard. We are a country that is so rich in culture, race, and ethnicity. As a teacher, I have learned from my students that their race and ethnicity absolutely matters to them. Republicans advanced the bill on a party-line vote. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. California released its own plan this week on Colorado River water cuts. Here's the show co-host, Mark Brody. That comes after the six other basin states put forward their plan. California was the only one not to sign on to that agreement. Both were in response to the Federal Bureau of Reclamation asking the seven Colorado River Basin states to figure out how they'd use less water going forward. 
With me to talk about the proposals and where they go from here is John Fleck, water policy researcher at the Utten Center at the University of New Mexico School of Law. And John, let's start with the six-state agreement reached earlier this week. What are some of the key elements of that deal? So the most important element of the six-state agreement is a recognition that we need to make far deeper cuts in lower Colorado River Basin water use um, than have been contemplated in the agreements we've had before, the famous drought contingency plan and, and the deals that have gone before that. And it's a clear recognition that, you know, absent further action, Lake Mead is is headed toward Deadpool, which would be catastrophic for Arizona and California and Nevada. What kinds of measures do the six states propose taking to try to uh, use less water and, and make sure that Lakes Mead and Powell stay reasonably okay? Um, the key element in all this is um, the six states. So this is all the Colorado River Basin states except California right. is the quickest way to say it. The six states have um, argued in their proposal that we need to do something we've never done before in managing the lower Colorado River, which is in our allocation and distribution of water, we need to take into account the fact that water evaporates from Lake Mead um, and some of it evaporates on the way down the river to the various um, diversions where people like Central Arizona from the Central Arizona Project take their water out of the river. It's sort of a, a recognition of the physical reality of that water evaporates, um, which the law of the river up until now has not taken into consideration. So that's the first thing. The second really important thing is that in allocating those shortages, they essentially spread that pain across all of the water users in the basin. So California takes a hit based on its proportion of how much evaporation um, happens on the way to California's intakes and Arizona similarly, and Mexico and and the other water users um, similarly. So so really crucially, it's about spreading the pain evenly across the Lower Colorado River Basin. All right. So you mentioned that that was an agreement reached by the six states, not including California. Yesterday, right. California put forth its own plan. What's different about what California is suggesting versus what the other uh, Colorado River Basin states are suggesting? So, so first, it's important to recognize what's the same about them. And this is really important. California also acknowledges that we need to make extremely deep cuts to save Lake Mead but they don't agree with the method of making the cuts. They say, if we're gonna make these cuts, we need to follow what California understands to be the law of the river, which reduces the impact on California, allows them to take smaller cuts and increases the impact on especially Arizona and especially the Central Arizona project. And it really brings to a head something that we've been fighting about in the Colorado River Basin for more than 50 years, which is this question of, you know, who bears the brunt of shortages? You know, up till now, we've avoided the fight by just letting people take water out of Lake Mead, and that fight is now coming to a head. And what's at risk is either much deeper cuts on the California side or much deeper cuts on the Arizona side, depending on how this plays out. Well, 
It seems like you mentioned it's you know coming to a head a, a disagreement that's been going on for the last 50 or 60 years, but Arizona and California have been fighting over this particular amount of water for longer than that, right? Like it seems as though <laughs> this is this is just kind of a continuation of fights that Arizona and California have had for, you know, for a century just about. Yeah. It, it that's a great way to put it. Um there has been a disagreement um since the beginning of our attempts to develop the Colorado River more than 100 years ago, we had legal decisions in the Supreme Court. We've had federal legislation that have attempted to sort this out. But all of those legal decisions and federal legislation have dodged the problem by allowing people to not settle the question and instead drain Lake Mead to avoid having to settle the question. Lake Mead's near and empty, and we can no longer avoid this question by just taking water out of the reservoir. So do you think, based on what these two proposals suggest doing, taking away from the equation who maybe takes more of the brunt, would they each have equal effect in terms of conserving water, using less water, and and making sure that Lake Mead keeps water in it? The numbers in the two proposals, the total amount of conservation savings are very similar. Um, the six-state proposal goes a little bit deeper, a little bit sooner. Um, the, the California proposal does not go as deep as early. So it's a question of are you cautious and protecting against a high-risk future, or you do, do you um, back off a little bit in the cuts and take advantage of a good snowpack that we're, looks like we're headed for um, this year? But I would call those differences minor. The major thing, and this is really important, we now have a seven-state consensus on the fact that really deep cuts are needed to protect Lake Mead. The only difference is how we do it. So what happens next then? I mean, obviously, the federal government had said that if these seven states couldn't reach an agreement, the feds might just come in and, and unilaterally impose something. Is there an extension? Is there going to be jockeying now? Like, will California try to bring some of the other six states onto its side? Like, what, what happens now? So the federal folks I talked to um, say that they never really intended this as a drop-dead deadline. Um, that they would like to see discussions among the states continue to refine these proposals. And, and I think there's a good possibility for that. Ultimately, we will have some kind of federal action by summer. A clear legal process has been set up um, to do that. And the federal action will you know, include whatever the federal government thinks among these various proposals might work well. And if the proposals are not enough to protect Lake Mead from Deadpool and protect Glen Canyon Dam from breaking, um, then the federal government may, in fact, do more. And so that's the process we're in right now is an evaluation of these proposals to try to figure out, do they do the job that is needed and what additional federal action might be required? Do you think there's any chance at this point that all seven states might be able to agree on a specific plan? You mentioned they sort of agree in principle on what has to happen, just not how to make it happen. Could they also come to agreement on how to actually make it happen? I, I am hopeful that there's still space for the two sides to come together. It's not out of the question. They made tremendous progress in the last six weeks um, to come close to an, uh, an agreement that all seven states could have signed on to. So I still think, you know, I'm optimistic about the ability of the collaborative problem-solving structure of the Colorado River Basin. Like, these people have been doing this for a long time. 
Um, and I'm optimistic that that they could um, do something. Um, but the fact that we can no longer paper over our differences with just releasing extra water from Lake Mead makes it a lot more difficult. All right. That is John Fleck, water policy researcher at the Utten Center at the University of New Mexico School of Law. John, thanks as always for your insights. I appreciate it. Thanks much. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In science news, here's Nicholas Gerbis. Apache Junction police are looking into the death of a three-year-old who ingested fentanyl. It's the latest tragedy in Arizona where five people a day die from opioid overdose. The story is part of how the opioid epidemic is changing. The opioid crisis has mutated from medication misuse to deadly mass poisonings as people unwittingly ingest other drugs laced with fentanyl. The burden, too, has shifted from rural whites to minority groups, especially blacks. Through it all, Native Americans have ranked among those hardest hit. Sari Horwitz led the Washington Post's investigative opioid files series. Across the country from 2006 to 2014, Native Americans were nearly 50 percent more likely to die of an opioid overdose than non-Natives. In lawsuits, tribal leaders blame drug companies for targeting their communities. Meanwhile, Scott Higgum, another Post reporter, says fentanyl is cheap to make, immensely profitable and easy to smuggle. But he adds it has little to do with immigration. Very little fentanyl is being carried by people. It's mostly being stuffed into cars and into trucks by drug trafficking organizations, the cartels, and by their smugglers, and just driving it right through the ports of entry. The drug naloxone can save people during overdose, but research shows only 15% of U.S. counties have community-based distribution programs, and fewer than 50% have treatment centers that provide the medication. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And finally, in Tribal Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. Let's hear about the geoglyphs in Arizona. Here's Lauren Gilger. I spoke more about geoglyphs with someone who would know, Dr. George Shannon, a regional archaeologist with the Bureau of Reclamation. Beginning with a little archaeology lesson, what exactly are geoglyphs? Who made them here? Geo means earth and glyph means writing. So it's uh an earth writing, if you will, as rock art, but it's done in a way that is best viewed from the sky. Some of these geoglyphs are rather large, uh, and you need to be high up to see them to fully comprehend their entire scope and meaning. Uh, whether we refer to as a uh, effigy work, or it can be either geometric or, or anthropomorphic in nature, they are often described as having a very mysterious origin mm-hmm. and also of having mystical properties. Hmm. And uh, they're revered for their spiritual power. And these are how old usually? I mean, we're looking at ones in Arizona. There are some around Blythe. Um, and they're sort of human figures or some animals, some sort of spiral designs that, like you said, you almost need to be above, you know, in a, in a drone or in, a, in an airplane to see. Who created these? They're made by the human people, human speakers, the, the Mojave and the Kokopa uh, uh, nations. And they're roughly a thousand years old. Some are a little younger, some a tad older. But they are uh, impressive. And the way they're created is uh, there's a phenomenon known as desert varnish out on the desert mm-hmm. where the, the rocks are, are darkened uh, by years and years of radiation from the sun. But if you pull those rocks back underneath, there's a light tan subsoil. Hmm. And so the way the geoglyphs are formed 
is uh, you either rake back or stamp down the uh, desert varnish so that there's a contrast created between the light-colored soil beneath and the dark rocks and pebbles above. Right. Like I'm looking at one now of the, the Bouse fisherman, right? Um, the, the picture of this. And it, it almost looks like it's been sketched into the earth, which I would imagine would make it really hard to discover them, like from the ground itself. How do you go about finding these? Well, it takes a lot of a lot of uh, footwork uh, out on the desert pavement to, to run into them. Most of them are actually found through aerial photography, uh, satellite imagery, with the onset of uh, all the drones lately, mm-hmm. uh, they're being very useful in not only uh, finding, but also monitoring the geoglyphs uh, that are out there. There are thousands of them about, and they are symbolic and have very sacred meaning to the Mojave and to the Kashan peoples. They are religious in nature, mythological and ceremonial are they still used today? Yes, they are. Hmm. Uh, you wouldn't know that because it's not announced or publicly uh, demonstrated, but yeah. uh, most of the practicing uh, human folks in the area uh, still go out today and, and pay their respects and do ceremonies at these sites. They're all about the afterlife hmm. and uh, the various images that are portrayed usually tell a story, um, some part of their mythology, dealing with their cosmology, their, their worldview. And, and some of them actually reflect uh, astronomy and, and relate back to uh, celestial arrangements in the sky. I, I could go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes sense, right? Like, so drawing these things on the earth and in such massive scale, right? Like, it's almost like a communication to the celestial body, whatever it is they may believe. That's right. And they're, they're continually looking for guidance from spirit powers uh, and the world above. And they generate that energy and that power by going out on these ceremonial platforms, which these geoglyphs function as. And there they have an open communication with uh, the creators above. That's really interesting. So I understand, though, there are some threats to these geoglyphs in this region, and uh, it sounds like around the country, in terms of, you know, industrial development, essentially, maybe solar development, things like that. Tell us the ways in which there are concerns right now about about preserving these. Yeah, well, they are protected uh, through archaeological recordation uh, and by monitoring by archaeologists on the government lands primarily uh, Bureau of Reclamation and Bureau of Land Management. They're protected by listing them on the National Register of Historic Places. And they're physically protected with fencing and signage. There's also uh, Archaeological Resource Protection Act, ARPA laws and regulations in place with criminal penalties for anyone who would want to go out and harm one of these uh, geoglyphs. Mm -hmm. But uh, they are, uh, unfortunately... (laughs) located in areas that most often are are prime areas for solar development or wind farms, things of that nature. And so uh, it's very important that before infrastructure like that goes into the desert, that uh, the tribes are consulted and uh, there's a consideration of uh, what harm could be done to their religious beliefs and to these geoglyphs themselves. Hmm. 
So uh, there's all kind of uh, negotiations that go on that help protect and, and mitigate the damages that uh, might occur to a geoglyph. Right. Uh, is it enough to sort of fence them off or are they sort of inextricably tied to the landscape? Well, they are indeed inextricably <laughs> entwined with the, the landscape. You don't want to mess with one of these things because, as <laughs> I said, they they are spiritual they, yeah. and they are full of spiritual power. And, you know, depending on your own personal beliefs, that may or may not uh, concern you. But believe me, there is great reason to be concerned. And so you don't you don't want to go and, and mess with with a geoglyph. Hmm. So do you think, um, Dr. Shannon, that that more needs to be done to preserve these and make sure that they are protected? Sure, uh, we do need to do our, our very best effort at protecting them because when they're gone, they're gone, and uh, there's no putting them back. Uh, they're very very important to the Kashan uh, and the Mojave people, all the people of the Yuma speaking nations uh, throughout the uh, Southwest. The Hopi are interested in them as well as the uh, Chimawavi, who are Paiute type folks. Um, these are very important. They're more than just rock art or earth figures. They have meaning and they're part of the, the Native American heritage and they deserve our respect and our protection. All right. That is Dr. George Shannon, the regional archaeologist for the Missouri Basin for the Bureau of Reclamation, joining us to talk more about geoglyphs here in Arizona. Dr. Shannon, thank you for coming on. Thank you for your expertise on this. It's really interesting. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak. Thank you. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.